Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Man, thank you, Brian. Good morning, Covenant. It's good to see uh, everyone this morning, or at least imagine you this morning, if you're not here. Um, before we get into the message, uh, you know, one of the things that's going on right now as a dad is walking his baby around in the baby carriage. It's awesome. And, you know, it's a different time. And I want to say that specifically because parents, uh, those of you who maybe aren't with us this morning because of concern, are my children going to disrupt the service, or how do I handle the children without uh, you know, Sunrise Island and Covenant Cove? Uh, we are uh, taking steps, and we'll come back with this uh, either this week by email, hopefully this weekend or next weekend, or next week or the next, uh, we will have uh, worship aids for your children uh, as they, so they can interact with the sermon at their level uh, as I'm talking, and also uh, looking at maybe having a children's sermon portion of the service just to try to integrate your children into our regular worship. And uh, it's really okay. Bring your children, come on to church. Uh, if, they, if you need to get up and, and go bounce a ball against the back of the wall because they're needing to do something with their hands or, you know, every kid is, it, it really is perfectly okay. Not gonna bother me a bit, all right? Um, I'm now at the, I'm at the grandparent age now. And so grandparents are calm with all this, right, grandparents? I'm just waiting for my grandchildren, that's all. I'm at the age, I just don't have them. So, so it's no sweat, just come on, all right? And we wanna have you back in our church service and your children with us. Well, you know, a few months back when we started this series on the book of Romans, I provided you with a very simple outline of how to kind of organize the book of Romans by theme. And if you look at the book of Romans, it, it breaks down and according to five words, five sections, all starting with the letter S. Uh, we saw started with sin in chapter one through uh, halfway through chapter three, and then right on the heels of sin is salvation, our justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then that, those great chapters, six, seven, and eight, that deal with the the power of sin in our lives and the presence of sin. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Ooh. <coughs> Ooh, that was weird. Um, uh, all right, hold on. <coughs> Someone down the wrong pipe. Uh, sanctification came on by the heels of that, chapter six to eight. And then. Uh, we, before we took a break in April, we dip, dug into those deep chapters that deal with <clears throat> God's sovereignty. Well, last week, we come to the last section, the last five chapters of the book that deal with um, the idea of our service. And 
we, we kind of started with just the first two verses because those first two verses are so key to understanding uh, the, the rest of the five chapters, the last five chapters of the book of Romans. And, and these first two verses, it, Paul is focusing on us as individuals and our consecration to God and how does that happen. And we noted last week, it doesn't happen by us doing more, <clears throat> by us our own works righteousness or, or, or you know, ways that we earn God's merit. It doesn't happen by doing, but by letting. Letting the Holy Spirit transform us. You know, uh, somebody said, what do you mean that word letting? If you think in other passages of the New Testament, Paul says it a little differently. He says, for example, not to resist the Holy Spirit, right? Not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In all these different ways, what he's pointing out is that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. He's the one who does the transforming. It's 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 the Lord who walks across the room to us and he pours out his grace upon us. But we do cooperate with that transforming effort. We can resist. We can, we can you know, argue against the Lord, and we can pursue the things of this world rather than cooperate with what this work that the Holy Spirit is doing. And so he starts at the individual level saying, we need to be transformed to have renewed minds. And the rest of the book, just about, is kind of more of a collective emphasis, but he starts at the individual level. Because if we as a group are going to accomplish the mission that God has given us, then individually we have to be focused on this matter of being transformed by the renewing of our mind and not being conformed to the world, of letting the Holy Spirit do this transforming work within us. Because if we don't, the issues that will arise in a church will derail it. This is what was happening to the Romans. Just to kind of remind you, you know, this church had issues, and their issues ran deeper than to mask or not to mask, okay? Uh, their issues were bigger. Uh, they, they, if you, just to kind of remind you, we, we might have touched on this back in the fall. You know, the church started in Rome as a group of Jewish believers, maybe guys from Pentecost who came back, and then apostles worked with them, and, and they form a church, and it's basically a Jewish believer church, and then Gentiles come into the church, but the Jews were, Jewish believers were leading this church until the emperor uh, forced the Jews to leave Rome because of political tensions and strife. These Jewish founders and the foundation of the church, they go. They're gone for quite some time. Gentiles take over leadership of the church. They do church differently. They have a different understanding of the gospel, in fact, because they don't have that heritage of the law that was coloring their understanding of the gospel. So when the Jews came back to Rome, people who had been a part of the founding of the church, they come back to a very different church, you know? And so their church has been changed. And now you have, once again, Jew and Gentile in the same church, and there's conflict arising through because of the, just the different understandings of God's will and how to live in light of the gospel. So this morning, we're moving on from that great exhortation to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to practically seeing how will this manifest itself in our lives as we live in biblical community with other people. If we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, if He's renewing our minds, we're going to think differently. 
about ourselves. We're going to think differently about uh, how we interact with one another. We're going to think differently about even the, the church and the body of Christ itself as the gospel forms us. And so this is what we're going to look into, and this is what Paul puts before us in verses three to eight. The first thing he shows is that when our minds have been transformed and we are being renewed in our thinking, we will evaluate ourselves against a different standard than the world. Verse three says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. You see, with the unrenewed mind, before we come to Christ, before the Holy Spirit pours out that saving grace upon us, the unconverted person generally has a tendency to think of himself or herself more highly than what we should. We think of ourselves as good people, as righteous people. You know, when we think of bad people, evil people, it's somebody other than us, right? And this is the natural tendency of the human heart. The psalmist says it in Psalm chapter 10, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God and all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Before conversion, we are essentially proud people. And this is why Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with that great exhortation, that condition of the human heart that has to be there if salvation is to follow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually humble. Blessed are those who actually see themselves as sinners in need of God's grace, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Without this mindset, you can't even enter into the kingdom of God and to the family of God. There first has to be this conviction in the heart and in the soul that I'm a sinner, that I cannot please God in and of myself, that I desperately need his grace. I desperately need God to save me, to rescue me through Jesus Christ. The Christian walk starts with this simple understanding that Jesus puts in the Beatitudes. But here's the thing, after we confess and we admit our need for salvation and the Holy Spirit enters into our lives, we do not instantly become humble people, do we? We still struggle with pride and arrogance and self-worship and self-centeredness. So Peter, in his letter to the church, says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Because of this reality that we, we, even though we have been redeemed, we are still typically proud, self-centered people, Paul begins with this exhortation saying, evaluate yourself. We must evaluate. We must see ourselves as we really are, that we are sinners in need of God's grace for all of life, for nothing good comes from us apart from his grace. Evaluate yourself against the standard. Well, what is the standard by which we evaluate ourselves? You know, unfortunately, you know, there's been some translations that have taken the underlying language and they say, evaluate yourself against the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. And, and it comes across like 
Okay, the way I evaluate myself is I compare my faith and the amount of my faith to the faith of, say, Keith, you know, or Rick, or Paxton, or maybe, as he talks about spiritual, I compare my spiritual gifts against somebody else's spiritual gifts. I compare myself against someone else to see how I'm doing. And, and that's, that's, that's why, honestly, it's the, the translation of that phrase is why we're using the New Living Translation this morning rather than the one that we normally use, the English Standard. The English Standard, I think, missed the mark on this verse. New Living gets it right. We measure ourselves by the faith God has given us. This faith, what is this? This is the gospel. The standard by which we measure ourselves against is Christ himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his word. This objective standard is who we look to. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross, endured the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is who we compare ourselves to. To the Philippians, Paul will say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the standard it's Christ. And when Christ is truly our standard by which we evaluate ourselves, that poverty of self, the humility called for in that very first beatitude will inevitably be the result as the Holy Spirit continues to chip away and transform us into the image of Christ. Because Christ was that perfect, humble person who put himself before God and allowed God to say, this is what I would have you to do. And he laid aside all the glory of heaven and those rights that he had as God in the flesh and he endured the cross for us. So for those of us who tend towards pride, towards self-centeredness, towards self-worship and, and estimating ourselves too highly, when we compare ourselves towards Christ, the inevitable result is that we will be humbled. Some of you may not struggle with pride so much. There's some people who they go to the other end of the extreme, and there's a, a sense of, of uh, poverty of spirit that is unwarranted. In modern terms, that might be a poor self-image. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Most people who struggle with poor self-image, um, it's really just a different disguise for pride. That's been my experience. But there are those who truly, you know, they, they look down on themselves. They despise themselves. The great thing about the gospel, when we compare ourselves to Christ, and we know who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us, and we're living out of that richness, we will neither be proud nor will we be despising ourselves. So we end up with a very realistic understanding of who we are when we compare ourselves to Christ. Keller, Tim Keller writes it like this. He says, the gospel prevents us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are sinners and all our efforts earn only judgment. And we are saved entirely by another's kindness. And the gospel prevents us from thinking in a more lowly way than we ought. We are saved sinners, 
And we are loved and valued in the gaze of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. And so the gospel keeps us from going from either extreme, one extreme or the other, and it gives us this objective standard by which we evaluate ourselves. Unlike the world, which may evaluate oneself against another person's bank account or title on the door in the office or how well the children are or what college they get into or what kind of car we and all the material things and all the standards of the world and, or the, the color of our skin or how we talk. All these different uh, standards that submit themselves to the vagaries and the, the sin of this world They drive us to one extreme or the other. Only Christ gives us a realistic understanding of who we are now because we're in Christ. So we evaluate ourselves. When we're thinking with renewed minds that have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, we're going to continually evaluate ourselves against a different standard. And secondly, in verses four to five, we will value the body of Christ and our place within it. He writes, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. That that word just, it's linking us back to what we just talked about, the gospel, Christ being our standard to which we compare ourselves. And now he's expanding on this and he's saying, we can't think highly of Christ and have a realistic view of ourselves if we don't see ourselves within the context of membership within the body of Christ. To truly see who we are, to understand who we are, to really know how special we are in the eyes of God and how loved we are and how secure we are, if we don't see that within the context of, a, of the church, we're gonna have a skewed understanding. We're going to see ourselves in a faulty way. Maybe to say it another way is to properly value ourselves, we must value Jesus's church and our place within it. Let me rephrase, say that again. To properly value ourselves, we must value Jesus's church and our place within it. Now, what do I mean by Jesus's church? Um... Uh, is this the big C church or is this the little C church? Big C, little C. Which one is it, right? Now, now when I'm talking about big C church, I'm talking about the universal church. This is every believer who's ever walked the face of this earth since the beginning of time to the last person who comes into the kingdom before the Lord returns, right? That's the big C church, the universal church. It transcends all borders, all nationalities, all sects, all people groups, every tribe, nation. This is the big C church. So as Paul's saying here, listen, for you to have the right understanding of yourself, you must value your see yourself within the big C church, Or is he saying, hey, to really understand who you are and to have the right perspective on yourself, you must see yourself within the little C church, covenant church. For example, in this case, or to the Romans, the Roman church in Rome. Which one is he talking about? Is, Is Paul talking about the big C church or the little C church? Let's take a poll real quick. How many of you think he's talking about big C church? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you think he's talking about little C church? Raise your hand. 
The Elam's voted both. Yeah, okay, I noticed that. Yeah, you're ahead of me. Yeah, he's talking about both, right. Because you see, Paul, he saw each individual church as the universal church in its local expression, okay? Paul was always writing to local churches that had local issues, local opportunities, local problems, but he always saw that those local churches were the expression of the universal church to their community. And so you're all right, you know, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. We have to understand, we have to appreciate our place within the universal church, but also within the local church. And we have to participate in the universal church and embrace that call just as we embrace the call to participate in the local church. And in these verses, Paul really gives us some excellent reasons why. He gives us four, I'm gonna give you four words that are in these verses that can help you understand why it's important for us to be engaged with one another in local covenant church. The four words are this, identity, diversity, unity, and community. Identity, diversity, unity, and community. Those four words are in these verses, right? He tells us at the very beginning of the verse that we are part of Christ's body, right? This is our identity. We are the body of Christ. As he says to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are Jesus's hands, his feet. We are his eyes, his ears, his mouth. We are his voice. We bring the mind of Christ to our culture as we engage it. We are the body of Christ, the living organism, the spiritual reality. And so any conception of ourselves that doesn't involve the church and our place within the church is a faulty self-conception. So there's identity, there's diversity. What are we? We are many parts, right? Many different members, all are important. We look different. We come from different backgrounds. There is diversity, yet there's unity. We are many parts of one body. So we are part of something. We belong to something that is bigger than each and every one of us as an individual. We're part of this grand redemptive story that God has put us within. And we have our part, we have our role to play and this leads us to community, or maybe belonging, right? We have our identity, diversity, unity, community, or belonging. We belong, it says, to each other. Why do we belong to each other? Because we belong to Christ, and each and every one of us is in Christ. There's some algebra formula here that makes, this, that makes sense of this. I think it's if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. What is that called, math teacher? Transitive property, thank you very much. I barely got through algebra, okay? Just so for the record, and algebra two intrigue. I still don't know how I got good grades in those classes, but I did. And but then I promptly forgot them. Uh, in fact, it's kind of funny. One of our young ladies asked me at the beginning of church this morning, she was on the floor doing some work, and she said, Pastor Jerry, um, what's, the, what's the periodic symbol for nitrogen? And I looked at her and I said, um, N? And, uh, and, and then her little brother said, I think it's NG. 
And, uh, and I said, I have no clue. I haven't looked at the periodic table in, you know, like 40 years. So I, I can spell nitrogen, I think, right? But that's about as good as it goes. So, but you know, and what he's getting at here, if you think about it, this is the transit. This is, you know, if we are in Christ and in Christ's body, then we are, you know, with each other. He's, he's doing a little, you know, logical play here. If we belong to each other, we, we do belong to each other because we belong to Christ, right? To belong to Christ is to belong to his church. And if we belong to his church, we belong to each other. Get it? Community. This is so important to our understanding of who we are, that we're not lone rangers out on an island all by ourselves doing the Christian life. We need each other. We depend upon each other. You know, there's a growing population of Americans who love Jesus, but not the church. All kinds of uh, studies are showing this. They are called the de-churched. It's another way of putting it. Or the duns. I'm done with church. I love Jesus, but not the church. If this is you, may I suggest to you this morning that uh, you're deceiving yourselves. That there's a good chance that you're falling to what Paul is warning against in verse 3 and that you're thinking too highly of your spiritual state. That what is the core of behind, the sin behind this is self-estimation that is too high. It's pride. Okay? Now, now, don't get me wrong. I understand. I recognize that every church will have its problems. Every church will sin. Every church will do dumb, boneheaded stuff that actually hurts the people that it's supposed to love and to shepherd and to take care of. Every church seems to do that at some point in their life. And, you know, tragically, sometimes this is because a church has just completely lost its way. It's lost its grounding to the Word of God. I think most often, though, when it happens in this church, it just happens because the church is filled with imperfect people who sin. And leaders who are imperfect leaders, and they sin. And, and they come to the point where they recognize, oh my, what have I done? And then they repent, hopefully, but the damage is still done. People are wounded, and, that, and that's just a reality of it. But we've got to understand something. If your faith, for your faith to thrive, even to survive, you need the body of Christ. This isn't optional. Your identity, if you, don't, if you aren't connected into the body of Christ, understanding that this helps form who you are, your identity more and more will become self-focused, self-centered, You'll become wiser in your own opinion than what you nearly should see yourself. You'll become so focused on yourself, your ability to actually discern good from evil will decrease. To distinguish truth from heresy, it decreases. Your understanding of morality, of what is right and wrong, just simply to live as a Christian, why is it that so many people who love Jesus but not the church are more and more vocalizing opinions of our society that are so clearly contrary to God's word and calling it righteous and good? Why is that happening? Because they are doing the Christian life on their own, disconnected from the body of Christ. The body of Christ serves as a check on our thinking and on our morality and on our opinions. 
And so while the statistical facts show that the the percentage of people who love Jesus but not the church is growing, it's also showing that the percentage of, of Christians who now live no differently or believe differently than the non-Christian world is also growing. So this is a dangerous idea. And I would suggest to you that your God-given purpose will never, ever be realized apart from an active participation and membership in Jesus' church. It won't happen. When we're transformed and renewed by the gospel, we will evaluate ourselves against a different standard. We will uh, value the body of Christ and our place in it. One final thought from verses six to eight. We will minister God's grace by stewarding our spiritual gifts. In these verses, he gives us a list of spiritual gifts. He says in verse six, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. That word gift comes from the Greek word charisma, and it speaks to a God-given ability to serve the community of Christ in a particular way. And these are manifestations of God's grace to us, through us, for the benefit of other people. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, this is the ability to speak the truth of God in a way that brings about <clears throat> conviction or edification. Um, it's, it's proclaiming the truth of God and into maybe a, a scenario of life or a societal situation and proclaiming it effectively. This is prophecy. A lot of people think prophecy is just, you know, look, you know, telling future events. Most of the time in the Bible, prophecy in this understanding is exactly what I'm describing. It's telling forth the Word of God in an effective way. So if you have been given the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. Again, there's this problem. Is he talking about an amount of faith? And again, I would contend, no. He's talking about speak out, speak it effectively according to the analogy of our faith, according to the truth of the gospel. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. Interestingly, this is the word diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. And it's possible that Paul is talking about deacons. If you're called to be a deacon, then do it well. But more likely, he's talking about the fact that we have so many people in our church who do that role. They, they functionally serve as deacons, serving, making sure ministry is happening. They do it behind the scenes without the office, and so he's talking to all of you who serve here at Covenant Church. If, you, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, if you can explain the truth of God so that people can understand it. You're not necessarily a preacher, but you're a teacher, and there's a difference there. In fact, if you go to Ephesians, <clears throat> when he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he talks about roles in the church, he talks about apostles and evangelists and and then he talks about pastor, and really, it's, it's a hyphenated word. It's pastor-teacher. The pastors of the church are supposed to be teachers. The elders must be able to teach, okay? So if your gift is teaching, then teach well. If your gift is to encourage, be encouraging. That word encourage is parakaleo. Back about 20 years ago or so, 18 years ago, our denomination did a study of all of our church planners' wives. <clears throat> See what was the health of our church planners, and they found an alarming statistic that, that almost like seven or 
seven, almost eight out of 10 of our church planning planters' wives were on some form of anxiety medicine. They were, they were under such great stress, it was destroying the marriages, and churches were failing because of the marriages of our church planners. <clears throat> and so a ministry was started. Ministry is called parakaleo, right? And this is the word here. Parakaleo means to, to support someone, to come alongside, to encourage, to counsel, to hold them up to inspire them, to comfort them. So if your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. Some have the spiritual gift to go beyond what's expected of every Christian. There's something about giving, and, and it, not only can they earn good amounts of money, they can invest it joyfully in the kingdom of God. This is the gift of giving. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. That word kindness, as Keller points out, is really better mercy. If you, if you love coming along the person whose life is broken, maybe there's an addiction or there's deep sorrow or they are marginalized by society or they're going through a life situation like our widows. I so love the team of people in our church who come around the widows and widowers of our church to provide them. This is what Paul is talking about. He says, do it well. Do it out of the strength of the gospel. And, and the list isn't exhaustive. The Corinthian list has uh, gifts on it that this list does not have and vice versa. And, and I, am, I think really throughout the ages, God has given gifts to churches based upon what the needs of that church are. And this is what he does here for us. But the reason why Paul is giving this really comes, it goes back to chapter, to verse two, right? To be transformed, renewing of the mind, to know the will of God at the high level, here's the will of God. Here it is at the high level. To serve God, to use our gifts, right? Uh, he, says, he says this in, in uh, Philippians, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as God called us before the foundations of the world to come into the kingdom of God, and he gave that gift of repentance and faith, he also ordained that we would serve him, that we would accomplish works that would bring him glory and bring good into the lives of other people who need Jesus Christ. And that good happens because of spiritual gifts. All right, you know, this series of messages, what is it called, what? So what? Why do we name it so what? Because we're at the portion of the book of Romans where Paul is taking all the teaching and he's turning it now towards practical application. And we use the word so what because oftentimes in my messages uh, about this time, in fact, probably about five minutes late, I ask the question, so what? Not always, sometimes we sprinkle the application throughout the entire sermon, but a lot of times we come to the end. So what, that's where we are right now, guys. So what, what is Paul really getting at here? Why is he listing out all of these gifts and, and talking about evaluating ourselves as being the evidence of a transformed, what's his point? What's he getting at? How does it apply to us? He's, what he's saying, folks, is this right here. Listen, God has given us these kinds of gifts and a basic, if, if you want to know, am I being transformed by the Holy Spirit or not? Is my mind being renewed? Am I maturing 
and my Christian walk, check your heart attitude towards his church. Do you love his church? Do you love the people of God? And, and not just, you know, I love you, man. I really love you. You remember that commercial? I love you, man. These guys were talking about, I love you, man. Now, not just words, I love you, man. No, but deeds. Does it express itself through serving one another within the context of the church? This is an important characteristic of someone who knows Christ. And so, when we de-emphasize participating in the body of Christ or being involved in a local church, we're thinking too highly of ourselves. Pride is at play, but even more seriously, it's calling into question, do we understand the gospel? Has the gospel actually taken root in our hearts? Because when you are in Christ, you are drawn to Christ's people, and you want to love them and serve them and do life with them. In fact, it can become so strong that you go too far and you become disconnected from people who don't know Christ. And we have to guard against that, right? Where we become a huddle of only Christians because when you are in Christ, you can't help but see a growing love for the people of Christ and the body of Christ. And if that's not existing, you need to check up on yourself. This is important for us to evaluate ourselves, understanding this. To be in Christ includes membership in his body. There's a, there's a local application and a global application here, right? Locally, we are going to get involved in one another's lives. You know, every year we do co covenant group fairs, and, and we try to help everyone here get established into a discipleship group where we can do life together and we can grow in Christ together where we support one another. It's one of the, the beautiful things about our church. You know, we did, we did our brother's funeral yesterday, Boyd Pasteur, and to see the people of God who have been in Boyd and Betsy's life through the years come around them in this time of grief. It's a beautiful thing to see. But this is what it's getting at here. So locally, right, it will manifest itself. We'll grow closer together. We'll love one another, support one another, serve one another by committing ourselves to our local body, the little C, and we pour ourselves into it. And at the same time, there's the global aspect because it's a both and. And we can't necessarily do in India what we can do in Palm Bay, but we can partner with people who can do it, right? And we can't do in Tokyo what we do in Melbourne, but we can partner with Dan Iverson who does and this is exactly what happened in Paul's day. The Roman church couldn't do in Jerusalem what it was doing in Rome, but they partnered with Paul and they supported the needs in Rome through Paul. And that's what we're doing here at our church through Faith Promise Missions so that we can globally be a part of the big C church and see the Lord magnified. This is a good reminder for us right now. I'm glad that... Um, we're able to do things virtually during this time, but I am really looking forward to when our rows are closer together and all of our families are back together again. This time of pandemic, I hope, is creating in you a yearning to be reconnected with God's people. If it's not, check yourself. Evaluate yourself. What's going on? 
Why? Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us your church. Uh, Lord, uh, every church I've ever been a part of has had its issues. Certainly every church I've ever pastored has had its issues because I was the pastor. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to pour your grace out in our church. Lord, just as, as individuals were to evaluate ourselves against the gospel, may we collectively as a church continually evaluate ourselves against your perfect standard, your perfect love and your grace. May we be a church that does not often wound, but builds up and supports and makes disciples. And if we do wound, Lord, may we be humble and repentant and transparent and honest so that you can heal where we make our mistakes. God, I pray that you would use our church in this way. I pray for our people. Lord, would you create in us a yearning to be with one another? Lord, those who've yet to maybe take that commitment to, to serve or to be involved in a discipleship group, would they go ahead and put their foot in the water and test the waters and engage this fall and commit their lives to a group of other believers so that they can have deep relationships and grow in their walk with you. Father, would you make us a church that loves each other so deeply that by our love for one another, our world will see something that is attractive and they will soon understand it's not us, it's Jesus who loved himself so much that he gave his life for us on the cross at Calvary. In his name, I ask these things for the good of our church here at Covenant and for your glory in Palm Bay and the world. Amen.